Hello and welcome to the Cultural Peeps podcast. My name is Ian Wielden and I'm a lecturer in the School of Arts and Cultures at Newcastle University. This series is part of an ongoing project which explores different career pathways across the museum, gallery, heritage and wider cultural sectors. I really want this series to do three things. The first is to help early career professionals understand the huge range of ever-changing job profiles that now exist. The second aim is to help those professionals interpret job titles in the context of different venues and organisations. Sometimes jobs with the same title can be radically different depending on the organisation. The third aim is to help listeners understand that the people that make up any field of work are all human and that in turn plays a significant part in their unfolding career pathway and decision-making processes. A few caveats. The recordings that form the basis for the podcasts aren't technically perfect. They're often grabbed in busy offices and in between meetings, so you can frequently hear the everyday world of work whirring on in the background. Just a final note, these podcasts are edited down from longer conversations, but I've tried to keep in as much of the original content as possible. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Cultural Peeps podcast. I'm at Annette Castle to interview today's guest, Daniel Watkins, the staterooms manager. Annette Castle is both a castle and a country house. It's a grade one listed building situated just outside the centre of Annette and receives over 800,000 visitors a year. As an attraction, the castle's open for roughly half the year, and when closed to the public, it still serves as a family home for the Duke of Northumberland and his family. The castle has enjoyed a huge increase in public interest, generated partly by its use as a stand-in for both the exterior and interior of Hogwarts in the first two Harry Potter films. It's also been used by the BBC for the filming of both the Great British Painting Challenge and the Antiques Roadshow. It also starred as Brancaster Castle for two Christmas specials of Downton Abbey and it was used as a location for the Hollywood blockbuster Transformers film The Last Night. Today's guest Daniel is the staterooms manager for the castle. It's a unique and quite unusual title that sounds quite specific in terms of its remit but in reality the roles that he undertakes and oversees are actually wide ranging and hugely varied. In terms of Daniel's pathway, we talk about his very early childhood interest in paleontology, but following that, he remained unclear about what he really wanted to pursue in terms of a career throughout his journey through formal education. Daniel has an ongoing interest in history, something which is apparent from his involvement in the castle, but he chose not to study that at GCSE level due to the specific focus of the curriculum for that year instead opting to pick it up at A-level alongside philosophy and religious studies and English language and literature. Daniel's interest in English continued through to his undergraduate studies, which he undertook at Newcastle University. He describes heading towards the end of that degree, still not knowing what he wanted to do, but being clear about what he didn't want to be, and that was a teacher. 
and around this time he applied for a seasonal job at Annick Castle with the goal of filling the gap between graduation and the start of a planned MA in creative writing at the end of the summer. At this point we talk a little bit about the barriers around professional networking and although that was something that was actively encouraged at university during his MA, it was something that Daniel found frightening as a prospect. And this might seem strange given the nature of the summer work at Annick, which required Daniel to speak publicly and lead large group tours for visitors. Daniel describes this element of his job as being more performative with a specific function that could be planned and controlled, which for him relies on a different skill set. This is a theme which has repeatedly emerged in the podcast series, and the association that many people have with the word networking seems really problematic for many early career professionals working in the arts. It often has connotations as something potentially cynical or even manipulative in tone and nature, and I do wonder if we should perhaps consider starting to reframe this skill and activity using different language, perhaps under the title relationship building. At the end of his MA, Daniel applied to undertake a short period of voluntary work with the archive team in the castle. The Duke of Northumberland's archive is spectacular and has been described as the largest continual archive in a private collection, so this had the potential to be a really exciting opportunity. That voluntary role then turned into a six-month paid position and put Daniel in quite a unique position within the castle staff having seen and worked with different teams that hold a range of different perspectives and goals. He then starts to develop an important and useful set of skills that allow him to bring together and sympathetically navigate those different priorities. An institutional change in 2010 allowed him to move into a more supervisory role and we talk about how the emergence of new opportunities helped him to drive his interest in the sector and define an area of professional interest. This was then followed by the opportunity to join the managerial team and is the foundation for his current roles within the castle's organisational structure. We end our conversation with a discussion about some of the training that Daniel's undertaken through work. This includes an online postgraduate diploma in heritage studies at Newcastle University, which he completed over two years, and also some really interesting training around Chinese culture, which is designed to help the castle better understand, cater for, and respond to the interests and needs of Chinese visitors, a rapidly growing area of their visitor demographic. In addition to some of the sites already mentioned, I've put links to as many of the organisations and projects that we cover in the podcast description. So if there's anything that you'd like to look up that Daniel and I chat about in our conversation, then that's a good starting point. Don't forget you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle at Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there is a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. That's it from me for now. I hope you enjoy this week's episode and I hope you find it useful. joining me today Daniel if we could just start off by hearing a little bit about what you do uh, what your role here is at Annick Castle. Yes so Annick Castle is one part of a large landed estate belonging to the Duke of Northumberland which has all sorts of different businesses one of which is a heritage attraction 
for the six months of the year that the Duke is not in residence. So my job involves opening the house, the staterooms, to the public uh, with tour guides, room guides, film tour guides, a unique job called the drawbridge assistant who helps control the capacities into the house. And in addition to that, I help run the schools and education offer and the social media for the castle as well. So a little bit of everything alongside other side jobs like assisting our collections and archives department with interpretation, new exhibition text, proofreading books and things like that. Just giving the customer facing perspective to their more curatorial role. So that sounds like an enormous job. It's a lot of... It's a lot of little jobs into one. We're quite a small management team here, so everybody has a few different aspects that they look after, and it all coalesces right, okay. into one whole. It's not strictly delineated into, yeah. you just do this bit. Everybody's working for the same goal in the yeah. end, so everybody helps each other out a little bit with various things. So how big's the team? There's probably about a dozen of us altogether okay. in uh, management or permanent supervisory roles okay. who help run the attraction. But in that, there are departments that are run through the wider estate, like HR, health and safety, fire safety, accounting, and things like that. Yeah. So there aren't dedicated people just within the attraction for that. You said that the castle's open for a certain proportion of the year. So are you employed here all year round? And is the rest of the team employed all year round? Yes, the management team are year-round, so we get six or seven months of being open to the public, training people, preparing for opening, and then there's that five to six month period where the family are in residence, which is actually quite nice for us compared to people I've spoken to in other attractions, because we get a couple of months to really think about how our year has gone, figure out what went well, plan for new things coming up the following year, without having to worry about the day-to-day opening. Most of our teams are seasonal staff. Some of them go off and work in the archives or go and work for the household or work on repairing medieval costumes and wizard's robes and things like that. But we re-recruit each season for our seasonal teams. And is your role predictable in terms of the kinds of things that you're likely to deal with? From month to month or year to year, yes. You never know what's going to happen each day, which I quite like. Right. For example, this morning I was talking to a school group who wanted to know about aspects of medieval life, like the Black Death and the Peasants' Revolt, okay. but also about the adaptation process of Harry Potter from book to screen, and combining those two quite different subjects into something that made sense yeah. was a new one for me. Whereas three days ago, I was talking about the life of the 16th century poet Vittoria Colonna and a connection to Michelangelo, which you don't normally do with a school. So there's variety within the day, but usually when we're open, you have an expectation of the groups that are coming, what sort of things you might run into, and generally speaking, what might happen. But there are always surprises. And within your job title, does that help ring fence some of the tasks that you have to do, or is it kind of very all hands on deck when you when it when it's needed given the size of the team? Yeah, when things happen, it is all hands on deck. If, for example, a TV or film production comes here to film, then everyone will play a role right. in that. When, say, a huge cruise ship books a visit and we're expecting over a thousand people just from the ship to turn up in. 
10 or 15 coaches at intervals. Everybody will be out on the floor helping with that. So when we're needed, everyone will gather in. If it's just a regular day, people can kind of get on with their own departments and their own teams and just help run that little bit of it. So I've got two questions that relate to that answer then. Yes. So the first one is, is the filming quite a common thing here? On a major scale, not too much. The most famous things that were filmed here were the first two Harry Potter films. Right. That happened when I was about 11 or 12, so I wasn't working here then. <laughs> and then there was quite a large gap where you'd have occasional things like the Antiques Roadshow would come in for a day or right. the big painting challenge would come and do a couple of days of filming. But we then got two quite major ones in quick succession. So Downton Abbey came two consecutive summers. Right. And then the year after that, Transformers came. Right. And they filmed in the centre of Newcastle as well, as well as Bamborough yeah. Castle too. So they were around the region and we had to close for three days. Such was the scale of that. Right. We haven't had anything quite to that level right. since. But you never know what might happen in the future. You never yeah. know if another film might want to come and make something here. Yeah. And the cruise ships that you said come in, is that, is that quite common over the, the summer months? Yeah, we get quite regular groups of... 100 to 200 people come on ships that dock at the Port of Tyne. Right. So they're given a choice of day excursions right. to take. They might go to Hadrian's Wall, they might go into Newcastle, they might come up the coast, they might come to Annick Castle and the Annick Garden, which is adjacent to it, mm-hmm. and have a day there as well. So we normally expect cruise ships maybe once or twice a week right. to the level of almost the entire ship coming here that takes months of planning right? Okay. and uh, just figuring out how we're going to fit everybody in the right place at the right time, yeah. dividing those coaches into groups, making sure that nowhere goes over capacity, everyone gets a chance to fly a broomstick if they want to, and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So those are more unusual. That might be a once every other year right. occurrence okay. at, at that level of quantity. As, as the role that the castle's played in films massively expanded the visitor base that you experience? It has, in some ways, this is probably, of the questions we're asked, this is a question that comes up quite a lot. There are a lot of dissertations on this subject uh, that come to us and ask about it from universities all over the country. And certainly Harry Potter has had a lasting effect. We don't overtly advertise that because we don't own any of the trademarks. We're not officially affiliated with Warner Brothers, Bloomsbury Publishing or anyone like that. But people do associate us either individually or through the media, through newspaper articles that will reference that connection. And so we're quite established as having had that filming connection now. And it's 20 years after they first filmed here and people are still coming all over the world and have heard of this castle just because of that. Downton had a little bit of an effect for a couple of years, but it is mainly Potter that has done that. I guess Harry Potter's more international. Yeah, it is. It's more domestic. Harry Potter is a global thing, and it's joined things like Sherlock Holmes, the Premiership, and the Royal Family as things that people all over the world associate with Britain. Yeah. So anywhere that has that connection to that, you see it on Victoria Street in Edinburgh, you see it in the shambles in York. Yeah. If it's got any kind of connection to Harry Potter, it will get people in. Yeah. yeah. And that doesn't show any signs of slowing down. So your job's 
quite specific, although it's very varied. Is this the sort of thing that you envisaged doing when you were at school, when you started picking subjects and planning a pathway towards what you might be doing? It was not. I didn't have a pathway. <laughs> when I was really young, uh, museums were an element of interest because I really wanted to be a paleontologist. Oh, right, okay. And as I got into high school, because I'm from Northumberland and they do a three-tier school system, once I got to high school, I discovered that science was not my thing. Right, I okay. was not good enough at science to do that. So that went goodbye, and I didn't really know. When it came to applying for university, I was thinking about what subject at school do I enjoy the most? Right. Went into English literature. Didn't help. That's such a broad subject. And we were told so at university yeah. that you could do practically anything with it, yeah. which didn't help me decide what I wanted to do. So just to go back, the paleontology thing. Yes. So can, can you pinpoint where that came from? Uh, an obsession with dinosaurs from about the age of three, I think. Okay. And is, is that linked to what you were exposed to at the time? I think it was, yeah. That was... We, were we in Jurassic Park territory around there? Ju Jurassic Park firmed it up. But uh, <laughs> some, one of my earliest memories is having a poster of dinosaurs on the wall oh, okay. and at my sister's christening where I must have been three or four. There's video footage of me being able to name all of them. Right, okay. Uh, I have a bit of a thing where I like gathering information in my head and just storing it in there and right. wanting to tell people about it, which works quite well when you now run a team of tour guides because that is essentially the yeah. job. So it does all come back in a very roundabout way. Yeah, yeah. I just don't get to talk about dinosaurs that much. Yeah. So you diverted away from those subjects that you weren't necessarily good at or didn't feel as comfortable with. So you, you gravitated towards, you said, English literature. So were there other humanities that you were linked to? Was it that the kind of field that you felt that you were strongest in? Yeah, I think it was the idea of reading, looking into books. And what I found at uni was it did end up giving me skills that, just like they said, were applicable for all sorts of different jobs yeah. and have come in useful since, even if it didn't point out a specific path. Yeah. Other humanities at school level, history, for example, you always get asked by visitors here, oh, did you study history? Yeah. And I normally say, no, I didn't. What I don't go into is that history on the curriculum tends to be really dull. <laughs> I ended up doing it at A-level, but I skipped it at GCSE right. because I looked at the things that you'd be studying and not one of them oh, right. had any level of interest for me. That's really interesting. So um, you were pretty connected with the, the curriculum that was upcoming. Yeah, they, they, sh they told you what you'd be studying for right. GCSE. They'd already decided what that was going to be. Yeah. And it just held very little interest for me. I liked history. I liked things like the kings and queens. Yeah. Romans, Egyptians, Tudors, Crusades, First World War, none of which got covered. 19th century political movements you couldn't move for. But... <laughs> Things that I had a level of interest in or thought I'd enjoy doing that yeah. weren't on the curriculum. It didn't really come back into my life until I started working here using the skills from English Lit yeah. and then applying them to history. Yeah. Were you doing other things whilst you were at school, were there, like kind of clubs or anything like that that you were part of or that were helping steer you in particular directions? Not particularly. Northumberland wasn't all that great 
for that kind of thing. Right. And my school was uh, emerging as a technology college. Right. So it offered things more on the practical side. In terms of arts-related activities, there wasn't all that much happening right. while I was at school that really informed that. It just it was what was happening during the school hours and supportive teachers during those hours of school being there, yeah. leading you in directions going, you're good at this, Yeah. that then spurred future decisions. So A-levels, did you study those, at, was that within your school or did you go to a separate college for that? It was at school, right. yeah. And, and what was it you picked, English Lit? Uh, A-levels were English Lit, uh, English Language and Lit, they combined oh, right. the yeah. two. Uh, history, I did do at A level, yeah. and philosophy and ethics. Oh right, okay. Which again, armed you with the skills to be able to make arguments and yeah. understand what they're talking about in the good place, but not so much in pointing out yeah. particularly where you would go with that. Did you have prior with that subject from GCSE, or was that just something that appealed to you at the age that you were? Religious studies, I think, was a compulsory one at GCSE for our school, right. so everybody did it. It, again, just seemed like one that I seemed to be quite good at and thought, well, maths isn't going to happen, science, not so much. English was the one that interested me, history I wanted to give a try, and that was the third one, Yeah, as yeah. it were. It's mm. come up quite a few times recent, right. recently, um, the, the religious studies and philosophy side of things, um, and it tends to have opened up huge number of doors for people in terms of helping them to structure conversations, arguments, um, presentation of facts to people, I, yeah. I guess, in, in, in some way. Yeah, and it, it does work on a, on a practical one-to-one level or a one-to tour group level. Yeah. You're able to structure your information, you're able to flow it, you adapt it to your audience, and you also find it bleeds into things like social media content when you're writing a blog, when you're looking at interpretation panels or hanging plans for pictures and trying to think of the best ways to convey information that for us is quite a challenge because we have quite a diverse range of audiences in the castle. You get the traditional country house visitors, you get the art enthusiasts, you get the decorative arts specialists, but you also get the people who are coming for Harry Potter who might not have any interest in old master paintings. They might not know about medieval history and it's trying to pitch everything at a balanced level that doesn't talk down to anyone but doesn't try and talk up to anyone at the same time and make sure that if you really want to go in depth with something, there's enough information for you. But at the same time, if you don't have any cultural capital pre-existing, that you'll get the same level of engagement out of that. And those broad art-based subjects give you the skills to be able to transfer that, even if at the time I was thinking, what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got no idea what I'm going to do. So did that panic you at all, not knowing what you might be doing? Were there people around you that you felt might be more organised, I guess, with that? It was a bit of a, a panic situation going into the final undergrad year. Right. And a lot of people didn't really know what they were doing. Yeah. And a lot of my friends took a few years, even after graduating, to figure out what they were going to do. Yeah. And that was reassuring. But at the time, I was thinking, what am I going to do? And I signed up to do an MA 
straight yeah. afterwards, which with the benefit of hindsight, I probably shouldn't have done, but I had that panicked, I don't know what I'm going to do. The economy had just crashed as well, which yeah. didn't help. Yeah. And thinking, I don't know what I want to do for a career. Do another year of study, maybe I'll have figured it out by then. Right. And were you socially within your group connected mostly to people that had been on your course there, the English lit people, or did you have a broad range of friends that were off doing different things at university? Yeah, I would say that most of the people I knew from uni were on my course. It was lots of English students. There were other people I knew from school who I'd remained friends with who were doing something a little bit broader, like nursing and things like that. But mostly it was arts-based people that I knew. The occasional speech therapist. Right. So mostly in the same kind of boat as you in yes. terms of not necessarily having a defined career path that say you know medical qualification leads you towards yeah that's right and I know there were quite a few people who at the time were going I'll, as long as I never go into teaching I'll be all right and have ended up going into <laughs> teaching which is probably the curse of the arts degree and that was the thing that really worried me around graduation level right is people from outside university, perfectly well-meaning, going, so I suppose you've done English, you'll be going into teaching. Right. And me thinking, I really didn't want to go into teaching, and I still don't. Is this the only career path that makes sense? Don't make me be a teacher. What I've been very lucky in having is now, as of a year and a half ago, I'm helping to run the education programme here, and I'm getting all the nice bits about teaching without any of the stressful bits. Yeah, the no homework. And no homework. Talking. No, I set the homework, um, which is good. Yeah. I didn't ask you where you went to university. It was Newcastle University. Right. Or were you the, commuting from? I commuted from Annick area in my first year. Right. Uh, but from second and third year, once I'd settled into how uni life went, yeah. I lived down in Newcastle and got more involved with things yeah as well okay that's a long commute from from here down there on the bus it was but i passed my driving test so that halved it okay uh but it's interesting that that commute between annick and newcastle is something that a lot of our staff do right the other way around which speaks a little bit to the state of the arts and cultural sector after 2008 where just to be able to get a paid job we're able to recruit people not just people who are interested in the history and the heritage of the site but performers as well actors and interpreters who will come up and take that journey to and from Newcastle and we do our best to help them out as much as possible with that but we do get quite a number of people who are after graduating from uni making that journey from Newcastle to Annick each day um, to be able to work in this job and we hope gain enough experience to then be able to either move up or gain something out of that closer to where they are. Yeah. So quick question on that. This is a bit of an aside from Mm. the the conversation we were having before, but are a lot of those people that you're employing there, are they all freelancers that you kind of advertise those positions and, and buying them and do you use them on a repeat basis year on year? Uh, Everybody is contracted for the season. So we have six main visitor-facing departments. Yeah. And 
we recruit at the start of the calendar year for opening in the spring and you'll be employed up till the end of October, beginning of November. And then it all starts again. Any freelancers that we bring in tend to be external performers who do special events, which might be people who are fire juggling jesters or fire breathers or people who own falconry companies, people who can offer something extra. But we've got an in-house performance team who can do things like that as well. All of our daily public activities, tours, talks, uh, armory demonstrations, things like that, will all happen with our team. And we operate on zero hours contracts, but we try and fit in with what people have as much as possible. And if they're volunteering at another site, or if they have a contract to go up to the Edinburgh Fringe for a week or two to do a play, we're not going to prevent them from doing that. Yeah. Let's go back to university. It sounded like you knew exactly what you didn't want to do. You talked about not Mm. wanting to be a teacher. That is correct, yeah. I knew what I didn't want, I just didn't know what I did want. Okay. So when you finished, what did that first few months look like? It was easy to ignore, I would say, because by that point I had applied for a summer job in the vacations here at the castle. Right. And that's how I started casual, couple of days a week, in between years at uni. Yeah. So I knew that at least until that October, I was okay. Yeah. And Patrick Garner, the head of the Duke's household at the time, had told me that that winter I could come and help out with dinners and delivering luggage and polishing silver and that yeah. sort of thing. So I had that casual employment going on. So I wasn't without anything. Yeah. It was more a case of I'll do that masters and hopefully by then I'll have figured out right. what I'm going to do. So were you juggling those two things at the same time? Yes. Uh, the Masters was not too demanding in terms of hours, right. contact time. It was a Tuesday and a Thursday evening. Right. Okay. And it didn't start till quarter past five. I was the only full-time student of a small group of part-time yep. students uh, in the Creative Writing MA yep. at Newcastle. So it was quite easy to be able to do most of a day of work. And then I could drive down to Newcastle and get there for quarter past five. Yeah. Or take the train down which is half an hour and a lot quicker as well. So I was able to balance the two. And the creative writing was, in terms of things I had to produce, it wasn't less structured, but unless I had an idea of what I was going to be writing, I didn't need to think, I've got to get a thousand words out today. If I had an idea for a piece of writing it would come to me quite quickly and then it was an editing process. So the workload for balancing those two wasn't too bad. So were you, were you just working here at that point or did you have other things happening? Uh, I was. Uh, I was able to almost use the excuse of, well, I'm doing a master's at the moment. Okay. I don't need to be looking too much for that. Um, which, again, in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have been doing. Occasionally jobs would come up at say tiny way museums i think the what had been the hancock museum is now the great north museum yeah. had just finished its couple of years of refurbishment and was just about to reopen and so they were looking for museum assistance yeah so i applied for jobs like that when they came up but in 2008 2009 they weren't coming up all yeah, that often yeah so you had you identified by that point that interest in museums and 
heritage and associated tourism, I guess? Not specifically, but I think because I'd had a bit of experience working here, I thought that is something I could do. Right. And I had lots of fond memories of visiting that museum when I was younger anyway, and I thought that would be a fun place to go and work. So I wasn't zoning in on that, but the Northeast for number of heritage sites at least is quite a good area. There's a, there are a lot of places, whether it's National Trust, English Heritage, yeah. things like that. So it seemed for something that you could use creativity for that would be a little bit different every day that wasn't teaching. Yeah. That seemed like a decent fit, but I hadn't... It was a few more years before that so was focused in on as, oh, that is what I want to do. Yeah. So were you just applying for all kinds of stuff in museums, front of house, curatorial collections, or was there a bit of a focus there as well? It was anything that came up, really, and it wasn't exclusively limited to that. I would apply for shops, I would apply for garden centres, which is a terrible idea with hay fever. Uh, But (laughs) it was that, if I don't finish this Masters without having found something, what if I never find something kind of end of university yeah. course panic again just applying for whatever came up yeah. but at least knowing that that summer I could probably still apply for the castle again yeah. and I did yeah. were you on a rolling basis here then was it just a kind of it was quite likely that you'd get work the following year not necessarily we still have to treat it the same way now as we did then which is when the season ends yeah. the seasonal contracts end you apply again the following January, but there's no guarantee that because you were here the previous year, you'll you, still be yeah. the most suitable person yeah. the following year. I was with that on that occasion, which was good. Yeah. So there was no guarantee for it, but you're hopeful that you'll get called back. Yeah. And we do have a large number of people who've been here for four years or eight years, or in one case, 20 right, seasons okay. just coming back yeah. year after year. You've got these two things going on, the creative writing. Yep. Did, did you have an idea about where that might be leading you? Not in the slightest. So we just doing it for kind it, of the... It was a placeholder for a year while I tried to figure out what I was going to do after right. it. Okay. A very expensive placeholder. <laughs> uh, but I thought if I don't do an MA now, yeah. in three years' time, when I could afford to do it, I might not want to yeah. do it. So if I feel like I might want to do it, I might as well do it now while I've got no idea what I'm doing. This is a little bit of a loaded question, but retrospectively, do you feel like you were deferring your decision? I felt like that at the time. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, I, I, knew that, I knew I was just putting it off by a year, but I couldn't think of what else I could do. Right. And I thought, oh, I'll do a master's. And were you living back up in Northumberland at that point, or were you still in Newcastle? At that point I was. I'd thought about remaining down there. But for the amount that rent would have cost yeah. for what was going to amount to between four and six hours of contact time a week, yeah. I couldn't really justify spending that amount of money for what was going to be two afternoons. Yeah, yeah. And were you making connections through the course with possible avenues with people that you might be able to help a career with there? Or was, was, was that connection base coming from the work that you had here? A little bit. They were very good and probably still are in that department at emphasising the importance of networking and knowing people. If you want to get into anything related to creative writing, whether it's being a writer, going into publishing, being a journalist, it's attending events and talking to people and getting to know people. 
And this may seem strange coming from somebody who has to talk to people professionally in large groups, but the idea of networking put me off. Right, okay. I thought, I wouldn't mind doing this. I'd quite happily work for a literary agent or work for New Writing North or work for a publisher or do some writing or whatever that might be. But the idea of having to go to events and trying to make small talk with people yeah. I don't know in the hope of making a connection is something that I still really don't like doing all right. that much. I can talk to people in a group of a hundred for an hour. Yeah. And I can perform an improvised comedy stage show for two hours uh, and with no idea of what I'm going to do and no preparation, but networking. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Can you put your finger on, on why that is? I can't really. I'm, I'm bad at small talk. I know that much. Um, <laughs> I think it's probably just you, when you're delivering a tour or you, it, it is like a performance yeah. almost. Yeah. It's not that you have a script as such. You're responding in the moment. Yeah. Um, and got touchstones that you know that you're going to move to, I guess, as yeah. you're going through. Whereas... And it's almost like you're not delivering that as you as a person. Yeah. Um, I think in a networking situation, and it's the same if I go to conferences or talks or things now, I will find it so much easier to go and grab a cup of tea, find the emptiest table and sit at the furthest corner of it, hoping that nobody's going to come over and try yeah. and start talking to me about why I'm there. Um, of because... course, the phone's given a perfect um, get out of jail card for that because you you immediately look busy if you pull a phone out and that yeah. further <laughs> isolate you. Yeah, um, which is bad. Um, and... Yeah, I think in the Masters that was what it didn't open up a career path, but it closed off another one going, well, if I'm not going to be comfortable doing the networking, I'm probably not going to get anywhere here because right. I'd really have to put myself out there as right. me. You were working here. Yep. And that obviously continued. I'm it guessing did. it continued. Yep. Um, and the, the years that you were consecutively here, was that role the same? It started to change once I finished my Masters. Right. So I saw out that season, which I think would be 2009, yep. and managed to get a couple of weeks voluntary work in the archive. Right. Uh, the archive has recently been described as the most complete continuous private archive in the country. Right, okay. Which means it's quite a good one. Yeah. Uh, the archivist told me last week if you laid it box to box, it would stretch for two kilometres. Wow, okay. So there's a lot yeah. in there. And what I was doing once I'd finished that was I was not applying for jobs that were coming up because none were yeah. in anything arts or cultural or anything that looked like it would be my kind of thing. I was writing letters to everywhere I could think of going, if you happen to have anything, even if it's a, right, okay. an unpaid couple of weeks work experience, yes, please. Yeah. And it happened to be the same place, but I didn't know anyone in that department. Yeah. It's the estate archive rather than the attraction, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. It's still a modern business archive as well as going back to the year 1200. They gave me a couple of weeks unpaid experience. By the second week of that, they were able to find funds to turn it into a six-month paid placement. Right. So again, that was, ah, great, six months So you must work. have made an impression there. Uh, hopefully. I think they'd been able to find just a little pot of money because they were able to bring on somebody else yeah. to work on this as well. They had a couple of big accession projects right. that were coming up that they could put a small team on. 
yeah. and just set us to work on cataloging and sorting out documents that had just been received into the archive and figuring out what needed to be kept, what didn't, what related to freehold properties and what was on map boundaries and repackaging and yeah. phase boxing and all these day-to-day archival things that, you know, the archive is a small department as well. There's only a couple of people yeah, that yeah. work full-time in the archives. So Had, had you worked too. out by that point that in order to get over a threshold, you needed to do some voluntary work? Because you said that you were writing letters to people at that point. Um, not voluntary work, but I was starting to get the impression that if you had done voluntary work, it did help you get that foot in the door. Yeah. If anything paid came up, yeah. the fact that you had already volunteered somewhere was probably not going to hinder you. Yeah. And it was volunteering in the hope that something paid would come up, thinking, well, if no jobs are becoming available, maybe when they do, they'll already know who I am. But um, what that did long term was the fact that I'd done six months of work for them and I knew the preservation techniques, I knew the importance of the conservation, I knew what the collections management team did and what they looked after meant that in my current role, I've got quite a good working relationship with them. I know what they need to look after when it comes to exhibitions and they're able to talk to me as a visitor facing person, but knowing that I have the understanding of what they need to have as well when it comes to things like looks levels and humidity and yeah. the sort of things you have to worry about curatorially that if you've only ever worked in visitor experience you might not think of yeah having had that six months experience means that i can see it both ways yeah. bridge those priorities together yeah so that worked out well in the long term, but again, that wasn't the plan. It was yeah. just, oh, maybe archives will be a thing. That's organising and listing things. I, I quite enjoy that. But you're starting to define now, aren't you? Yeah. Even, even if you're not quite settled on where in these types of venues, you're clearly pushing your chips towards yeah. a pathway. Here. Yeah. It, it's a gradual narrowing, but at the same time, at the time, it was whatever's available. Were, were you um, consciously narrowing there no right it was just a case of well there are no jobs anywhere most of my friends are either um front facing in a shop or in a cafe or haven't been able to find anything and i've got this opening coming up here because of this so i'm just going to take that see where it goes and at least i'm getting paid yeah so at the time it was just taking the avenue that actually resulted in me having work which um, I know makes it all sound really drastic, but for I'm in the generation that graduated right at that financial yeah, crash, and it did become very, very hard yeah. if you weren't going into the sciences to be able to find a job that wasn't just going to disappear in six months' time. Yeah, yeah. So this is about 2010, is it, by this point? Um, yeah. So it was 2010. I'd applied for the seasonal visitor facing work again just for when that six months at the archive ran out if they didn't have money for another six months i'd have something for that summer and an internal vacancy happened to come up they had expanded their business model as a combined attraction between the castle and the garden so these new roles were popping up i had been applying again everywhere whether it was cragside or or whatever it might be and this one came up 
applied for it. It was internal, so hopefully my chances were going to be quite good. And I happened to get that, and that was for a supervisor role. So it was very similar to what I'd been doing, but it was going to continue during the closed season as right. well. So you did that role for a couple of years. Once once you were in post with that, did that, that continued for a couple of years? Yeah, um, that's right. And And I was the first person to have that position. Right. So it was almost a new title. And that was quite nice because I could make it my own yeah. in a way. There wasn't a handover document. There wasn't a previous person who'd had that position. So it was a figuring out process over the next couple of years just to define what that was going to be. Yeah. Whether that involved budgets, to what extent, yeah. what kind of level of involvement with the archive and the household that was going to be, to what extent I was involved in training. And so it took a couple of years just to really nail down what my job actually was going to be, yeah. which was difficult at the time. It almost felt like winging it but at the same time was good because that job was defined by what I did. And should I have left that job, the next person would be doing what I had laid out. Yeah, yeah. Were, were you looking at other equivalent roles in equivalent sized organisations as a, a map of what you should be doing there? Or was it just a case of responding to things that were happening that needed doing on site? A little bit. It wasn't a case of ringing people up and again networking terrifying and <laughs> things like that but it was just taking note even just by visiting right. places and going ah, oh, that's how they do their ropes oh their photography signage is interesting i wonder what their policy is in a fire evacuation yeah and just noticing little things around the place and seeing how it informed the difference i found was you couldn't necessarily apply national trust standards or English heritage standards or museum or gallery standards because we always had that balancing act between the needs of the visitor attraction, security needs, fire safety needs, collections and collection safety needs and then the fact that all the time the castle is first and foremost a lived-in family home. Yeah. So every decision had to be made with the idea of that in mind. Yeah. You can't do much in terms of moving things about or creating something big and new without the approval of yeah, the, the family. family. Yeah, okay. So that meant that you could look at other places and equivalent attractions, but you always had that caveat of, well, that would work if we were open all year round, or yeah. that would work if we could put museum-style labels on the porcelain, but we can't. Yeah. Or that would work if we had fire escape signage, but we can't, yeah. and that kind of thing. So That's really interesting. It's a really difficult dilemma, that one, isn't it? Yeah, so having had worked with Patrick in the household meant that, again, I had an idea of what that side of it did involve. Yeah. And you knew that it's their house, and if you can do things that you know will keep the visitors happy, that will also meet with the approval of the household. And they're absolutely fantastic. They want the visitors to have a really good impression of the family, yeah. just as we want them to have a really good impression of the history of the castle. Yeah. So we work quite closely together. And some of those things I noticed in other places 
were able to bring into that. So, so what came after that? After that, it was just applying for jobs as they came up, thinking, I do have something here, but I'd like to see what else is out there. Never really getting anywhere. Okay. But around 2013-14, the HR manager at the time came to see me and said, we're going to put you up to managerial right. level, which basically meant you are secure here. You're not going to just disappear yeah, you're not at on some point. So I, at that point, there'd been a change in who was running the attraction. And it was a guy who still runs it now called David Hawke, who had come from an accounting and more travel tourism background. Okay. And he'd come in to, first of all, almost be the designated person in charge of the finances for the attraction, but that had morphed more into a general manager role. And he'll come in a few days a week and everything that needs to be done for the attraction will go through him. Yeah. Around him, the management team stabilised into what it is now, basically, with somebody in charge of the visitor programme, activities and events, things like that. Yeah. An events department in terms of weddings, conferences, functions and filming. Operations manager, retail manager, both still there from way back. Group sales, marketing, and then myself in charge of what is basically the largest of the visitor-facing departments. So we ended up with that secure team, and that meant that I kind of moved up a level. And again, there hadn't been a manager of that department before. So it was taking what I already had and upgrading it a little bit and adding slowly different bits come in. So was that nerve-wracking, that moving into a post that hadn't existed before and then you had to design and initiate structures to work to? A little bit. There were challenges with it, especially because I had started as a seasonal member of staff right. and was now managing some of the, of the people who I had worked okay. with. And, and because some of the members of that team had worked there more seasons than I had and here I am in my mid-twenties now asking them to do things for me there was a little bit of nervousness with that thinking are they even going to listen to me why would they yeah um in terms of actually using the role itself that was actually quite nice there wasn't a precedent there wasn't a previous person that I had to live up to I was gonna say did that Um, take the pressure off a little bit a little bit yeah it wasn't like I could be doing my job wrong because no one had done it before. So um, I might I might be doing it wrong, but not in the sense of well, insert name here never did it that way. Yeah, That's um, really at least on the managerial level, yeah. it was just figuring out what that role was actually going to be, um, and what it turned out to be was helping out all the other departments almost because I had the historical knowledge, which keeps getting added to and never stops being added to. When it comes to writing a group bookings pamphlet describing what you can get when you book a coach to come visit, I'll proofread or write that if um, His Grace needs an introductory welcome panel to be checked over, I can do that and match the tone of voice 
if marketing needs some social media to go out. Um, when our current marketing manager came in, I'd been covering that side of it anyway. So I was able to just continue, set up the Instagram, do the photo of the day, respond to tweets, do coming up this week or this day in history Facebook posts and have been able to carry on that and keep running that alongside her. All of these different aspects of everything that had come before kind of all just bubbled down into So you've got a really good holistic overview of an organisation which is expanding, Mm -hmm. changing, I guess. Yeah responding to different challenges that are both commercial and practical so it's a massive skill set and we were aware of that at the time not really it's just doing what needs to be done and i think the more experience i got the more i could identify things like we could be doing a social media campaign that focuses on this because i've seen from following museums and galleries and heritage sites that posts like this always do really well yeah where we could do something like that yeah and having the opportunity because i'm at the management level to actually do that yeah i go can i just do some posts about this see how they go down or whether a, an old education officer here um hannah agas who also did a course in the department at newcastle and then has gone off to work at the Museum of the Order of St. John in London. But she worked here for a few years, and it was working alongside her with education, using her curriculum knowledge and what she'd gained from the course at Newcastle, and then me using what I knew from the history from that to help inform what's delivered to schools. Yeah, is something that now she's no longer working here, and myself and my colleague James are running the education. We're able to take that, develop it, he runs the activities, I run the historical side of things, we can merge that together, and as long as we get the booking system right, we can provide curriculum-linked, strong, yeah. historical-based education stuff that, again, has all come from these different bits. It's really developed. interesting, because your relationship yeah. with the venue seems really central, so it seems that the confidence that you developed around the knowledge and history and you know the framework of, of how things kind of function and seems to have really buoyed your confidence in stepping into these other jobs. Yeah, and I think that's probably not just true for me, but almost all of our management team started as seasonal workers. It's really originally. unusual, isn't it? It's really um, interesting. Yeah, so Lynn, in charge of visitor operations, started seasonal on admissions. Yeah. James in charge of visitor activities started as one of the medieval interpreters and the wizards. Yeah. Caroline started as a seasonal till operator and as the sales and groups manager. Now I started a seasonal and worked my way up. So everybody had that base level of knowledge of how things worked and how they could make it better and got that opportunity. Yeah. And yeah as things came available. Sometimes people left and went and worked in other places and then came back. Right. But um, having had that base level of knowledge that you might get from seasonal work or volunteering, it does help on a practical level if you get that permanent full-time opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Not just because you know the people, but because you know the roles that you might now be supervising or the officer or coordinating or the manager of because you've done it. Yeah. So the, the role that you're doing by this point, that's the basis for the role that yes. you're currently doing? 
from that point on, my job title has stayed the same, but the role has continued to evolve. So I have this thing where... Is evolve a byword for grow there? Yes. Um, yeah, I have this thing where depending on who I'm talking to, I will change what I say my job title is. Right, that's Because of what I need it to convey to yeah. that particular person. That's really interesting. Um, for as far as, um, say, a member of the Butler team is concerned, being the staterooms manager doesn't really mean anything yeah. because they're working in the staterooms as well and I don't manage them. Yeah. But calling me the head guide makes sense. Yeah. If I'm at a travel and tourism show, head guide might not quite sound as posh as some of the other job titles on a panel that I might be on. So I go with staterooms and guides manager right. there. If I'm talking to a school at a teacher's evening, James and I will refer to ourselves as the managers of the education department. So they're all parts of my job, but the title itself, it would be very long if it had everything that I do. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I tend to explain what I do rather than what my title is. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, because yeah. you didn't give the title at the beginning. No, and that's that quite was deliberate. Yeah, yeah, that's quite interesting. So are you, you seem okay with that in terms of knowing that you have to be a little bit of a chameleon when it comes to presenting yourself, depending on what needs to happen in that scenario or situation. Yeah. Keeps things interesting. So you, you, you don't need to use the title to ring fence particular jobs that you're doing. Instead, you're, use, you're using titles to open doorways, it sounds like. Yeah, a little bit. Um, uh, I never want to have one of these job titles where you say it to somebody and they go, well, what's one of those? So, yeah, yeah. Um, so if I can adapt my title while still explaining it, yeah. but using language that makes sense outside of the organisation, within here, it makes sense because we have staterooms and I manage them. Yeah. But outside of that... Somebody who, you know, just asks, say, on the social occasion, so what do you do? Yeah. Um, and you might get somebody who gives some quite important sounding job, and it's a little bit like Chandler and Friends. Nobody knows what it actually is. <laughs> um, I'm quite happy just to change that title to something more translatable. So apologies if you've told yeah. me what the full title is. What, what, what is it, officially? O- officially, it's Staterooms Manager. Okay. But... There's also education co-manager underneath that, I guess, at the moment. Um, and then you've probably got head guide underneath that, or guides manager, uh, because the guides have expanded as well. My team doesn't just do guiding in the staterooms anymore. Right. We do tours around the grounds. We do tours of the film locations and things like that too. So it's not even within that team the title of staterooms manager doesn't quite fit. So on my contract, I'm sure it still says staterooms manager. Right. But there are all sorts of other bits that have since come into that. Yeah. But to rephrase it to a more accurate one would make it about four lines long. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm happy just to keep it short as long as people understand what else I do. Yeah. I'm fine yeah. with that. That's really interesting. So you started this job around 2014, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, when I got that title, right. it would have been around, around then. Okay. There wasn't like a huge difference. I was still in the same desk. Yeah. Still essentially doing the same thing, just to level up. Right, okay. And, and how did that move forward from there? It 
move forward with the growth of the organization really okay so from around 2014 or so year on year with that stable management team now in place we were able to focus on a new project for the next season yeah which increases the visitor numbers which gives enough money to do another new project which increases the numbers yep and so the goal is year after year to keep expanding and doing that so with that I try and have something new like a winter project during the close months each year whether that's adding short more detailed talks to the tour schedule so during those months of the year when we don't get families but we get the traditional country house visitor as our collections manager calls them yeah something extra to offer them that you won't get in the peak of summer yeah whether that's coming up with a capacity management system for when we are really busy, whether that's redeveloping the film tours to incorporate things like Downton Abbey after that had been aired and we were allowed to talk about it, Uh, whether that's writing schools workshops and teachers resource packs. As the attraction grows and develops, my role kind of goes along with it. Or setting up the Instagram, for example. We didn't have an Instagram until um, our manager said to me one day, do we have an Instagram? And I said, no, I don't really know how it works. Could we have an Instagram? <laughs> yes, I'll set one up this afternoon. Okay. So we set one up. We've just recently hit the 10,000 followers mark. That's great. So it's taken a couple of years. We just slowly grow it. Yeah. And it's not a written down strategy, but everybody knows that during our open season, we do a photo of the day on Instagram each day based on what visitors have taken and tagged us in. Right, okay. And then during the winter, we'll do more sporadic things like what's coming up this year or it's Christmas time, here's a nice snowy photo just to keep the feed going. Yeah. But we know we can rely on what people have taken. Yeah. And then that in, can then be used to inform other things. Yeah. So we, if we know what people are mostly taking photos of, we know those are the bits that were probably the most popular yeah. photo ops in terms of social media experience. Yeah, yeah. So there was this Capability Brown exhibition a few years ago that had big picture frames out in the grounds where you could look out on his landscape and it was like you were looking at a painting of that landscape. And they were going to be a one year and done thing for his 300th anniversary of his birth. But they were really popular on Instagram. People kept taking photos of themselves in the frames with the landscape behind them. So three years later, they're still there because people still like them and still take photos of them. And we were able to use what I found out from Instagram to inform something a lot more long-term. So at any point, have you been, as a team, or you individually been undertaking training from outside of the organisation? And there are things that we've done that are tied into again what's happening here so the Chinese market is the fastest growing market for us or at least it has been for the past few years and our sales manager Caroline has been out to China with Visit Britain to promote the castle with that in conjunction with that we'd all we've all gone out for training on Chinese culture and Chinese tourism and what people from China are looking for when they visit historic places in the UK and how we can serve that yeah. and how you can make them feel welcome and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, any The training we get, whether it's deaf awareness or 
dementia friends training. It's all tied into what you experience here. It's not necessarily management training yeah. as such. Yeah. That all does tend to happen quite organically within the needs yeah. of the business. Although saying that, I did go um, and do another postgrad course at Newcastle in Heritage Studies, uh, which was very nicely partly funded by work. So did you identify the opportunity or was that something that work had suggested? This is the moment at which I actually figured out what I did want to do. Right, okay. You committed at that point. Yeah, it was. I was probably in my mid-twenties by that point and I'd just finished doing a guided tour for a group and the moment I pinpoint is a little girl came up to me after that and asked me do you have to learn all these facts about history and watch all these films for your job and I responded with yeah I do actually that's quite cool isn't it (laughs) and that kind of clicked something in my head going oh I'm getting to use my skills from a degree and the stuff I enjoyed going all the way back to school and applying it to something. I'm getting to entertain and inform people. I you know, I talk and people are listening to me, which is quite gratifying. Um, I get to write, um, whether it's you know a Facebook post or a blog or um, a 100-page information pack on the history of the castle that then goes onto our staff Google Drive with hundreds of other resources that I've done. The, getting to be a teacher without having to do the stress of teaching, yeah. all of these things going, oh, actually, this might be what I want to Works do. Quite well. Luckily, quite soon afterwards, Newcastle Uni were hosting a conference at the castle. I think it was possibly to do with the agricultural department, which the Duke's quite heavily involved in. Okay. And I went along, had a bit of chat with some of the receptionists who gave me a business card for the... Um, International Cultural Centre for Heritage Studies. X as it was then. That's yeah. the one. Um, and said, oh, get in touch with one of these people and see if there's any courses you're interested in. Yeah. So I did. And by this point, I'd thought, oh, I actually know what I want to do. I've got the experience now. I would like that qualification that goes alongside it. Yeah. Because I knew from having applied for other jobs, just having the qualification didn't really get you anywhere. Just having the experience might not necessarily get you anywhere. But if you've got the experience and a qualification, you're in about as good a position as you can be yeah. in such a competitive sector yeah. when it comes to permanent jobs. So went along to the open day, had a really nice chat with Andrew Newman and thought, this is going quite well. I yeah. quite like the sound of this. Had a listen to what was going on and then found out that all of the courses involved work placements and went, oh, well, here's my closed door again yeah. because I'm already in a job and I can't just ask for six months off to go and work for somewhere else and hope they'll have me back. So I thought, oh well, that's it. It was nice to have come along. Maybe I'll just have to have the experience. And then discovered that they were about to launch an e-learning program and thought, aha, my door is open again. So signed up for that and kind of went from there as a way to shore up the experience that I've been talking about with something concrete to go I've done this, but I also have this, so I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. So did you approach work with with that? Yeah, once I knew I wanted to do that, I thought, well, there's no harm asking our manager to say, I'm going to be doing this course. I'm doing it to basically improve my background and skills for this job. I'll be learning about things like interpretation, 
ethical issues, people management, ecotourism, whatever else it might be, yeah. issues and ideas, the module was called, yeah. um, the first one. And everything I'm going to learn on this will benefit me here. So yeah. he was able to work out something that allowed them to part fund it right. um, to help me get along and do it and you know write a dissertation, which is what it ended up being. Yeah. And knowing that what I picked up with there could then inform what I was doing at work and improve whatever was going to so you come did, next. did that over, was that one year? It ended up being over two years, years because the e-learning program we was no modules. more halfway yeah, through. Yeah, I did three modules and then, and then you it, did the dissertation. Yeah, did three modules um, and then there was a little bit of limbo and then somebody called Ian Wielden phoned me up and said, <laughs> we figured a way out. If you did a dissertation, we could get the rest of your credits. Yeah. Yeah. So I took that, spent year two doing a dissertation. Yeah. I think it might have been an 18 month, possibly, because yeah. it was going to be a post-grad certificate. Yeah. Ended up being a diploma. Yeah. Um, so it moved up a, a level yeah. in that as well. And so we, it, it took two years. Were you doing that in your own time on top of a full-time job? Yes. Yeah. Was that, how, how was that? Quite challenging. challenging. Um, again, having that seasonal operation that we have here meant that during the closed months I could you know maybe use annual leave days yeah go down to a four-day week and have yeah. a day as long as one of my two days off that week was dissertation day yeah that was fine the e-learning was perfect because I didn't have to take any time off yeah you could log on do it as and when you could yeah okay. and as long as you got the assignments done in time it was fine. Um, so it was a case of managing, not managing work to be able to do that, but I still got two days off a week. If one of those was a study day, yeah, I was able to more or less get anything done. And then as the dissertation got closer and closer, it became every single spare hour and minute was <laughs> devoted to that. Oh, it's lunchtime, time for an hour of dissertation. Yeah. Um, oh, it's 1am, I could do another half an hour. I've only got to be at work at half eight, that's fine. And just plowing on and getting it yeah. done. We talked earlier about volunteering and you talked a little bit about the difficulties in terms of getting the experience and potentially using a qualification that fit together there. So how, how do you contribute towards solving that problem within the sector? When we're recruiting for seasonal staff, I want to get as wide a range of backgrounds and age ranges and whatever else it might be as possible. Um, as long as you're suitable for the job, it doesn't matter what your background is or what your qualifications are or if you have any or whatever that might be. If you've got the interest level and you've got the enthusiasm for it, you're probably going to be suitable and we'll see where we can go from there. With people that I recruit who might have just finished a qualification, whether it's an undergrad, whether it's a postgrad, um, I want to be able to give them the practical experience to then go on and hopefully that will help go the route that I've gone down. Might not be here, yeah, yeah. but if you've done a season or two seasons of working in one of the largest heritage attractions in the country, you know, working for the Duke of Northumberland, 
And if I can give you opportunities within that role to do some different things, like when they're doing a deep clean of the dining room ceiling, you might get a chance to do some conservation work. Or if there's a specialist tour group coming, you might get to you know go really in depth on your art research. You might get to work on your presentation skills. Because if you can do a 45 minute guided tour to a group of 50 people, you know, speaking in a boardroom probably won't be a challenge for you anymore. Yeah. Uh, if you can cope with evacuating 300 people when the fire alarm goes off, having had practical fire warden training experience, which we compulsorily offer everyone, in actually putting out fires trained by a fire officer, then that, that's not going to hurt. If I can get you on a first aid course so you can say you've got that qualification, there are all sorts of ways that I can help do that within our team. Yeah. Even working within that team, uh, there are ways to maybe expand that role yeah. so that on your CV, something can stand out from worked at Annick Castle as a stateroom and tour guide and did this, this and this, but also has this qualification that might hopefully make an employer go, well, you've done that, you've got that qualification and you've had that experience come for an interview. And then hopefully that might help make a foot in the door. What advice would you give somebody that was thinking about following a career path that was similar to the one that you've taken? I have been very, very lucky in being in the right place at the right time in on a succession of occasions and not everybody can be that which again is a real shame but if you're already in a place and you have a foot in a door it does help you get that other foot through the door should an opportunity come up if you're in the right place the right time might come up yeah. um, what my advice would probably be is if you can get experience and the qualification if you've got both it might not guarantee you anything but it puts you in a better position than if you've got one or the other um, especially now when so many more people than you know 20 or 30 years ago might have had a qualification and that would have been enough yeah or just having the experience would have been enough these days if you've got both it puts you in a better position it doesn't necessarily have to be volunteering if you can find casual paid work within the sector and again that in itself is quite hard to do but if you can do that you not only get the skills you might get from volunteering but you're going to get a bit of money as well and the other main bit of advice would be doesn't matter if you don't know what you want to do because one day something will click and you'll go oh I appear to already be doing it (laughs) okay that's a, a fantastic place to leave it Thank you very much for your time. Um, I really appreciate you making space, given how busy this is. This is your busy season. Yes, we are about to get into what we call the peak. (laughs) That's fab. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. A pleasure. Let's go and fly broomstick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.com.
www.wordpress.com. 